Welcome to Unfoldings, a podcast series connecting Melbourne and Vancouver dance artists in slow, deep, unblindly matched conversations. Imagined and curated by Angela Conquet as part of Dance in Vancouver 2021. This podcast is a partnership between Dance House Diary in Melbourne and the Dance Centre in Vancouver. These podcasts have been recorded on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh Nations in Canada and those of the Kulin Nation in Australia. Well, okay. My name's Joyce. It's so nice to meet you and to be here um, and to hear your voice. I am, I'm going to start with, with where I like literally am. I am sitting on a bed in my father's house in East Vancouver, which is on the unceded and traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. My background is I'm from Pangasinan. That's where my family is from, which is located on an archipelago that we um, know today as the Philippines. I'm the first generation of that lineage to be born on this territory. I think what I like most, or what I, what I, what I've, you know, I think in thinking about what that means, both places are really close to the ocean. I think it's very, uh, I feel very fortunate that my parents got to come from a place that's so close to the ocean and find themselves still near the ocean and so, what some of the, the, the values of, of the shared values of, of that, you know, lifestyle, you know, appreciation of really good seafood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling in today from unceded Gadigal lands where sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present and First Nations peoples who might be listening in. Survival of storytelling on this land is 60,000 years old, despite the most violent of erasures. And that kind of passing down, it's been oral and it's been embodied and it's been transgenerational. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how it is the antithesis to the canon in, in some ways. And I feel very privileged to be nourished by the ground here and surrounded by Gadigal skies and Gadigal waters. I've also, I've been on this continent for about a decade and I've also lived previously on Bunwurong and Wiradjuri lands. I, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm a woman of Tamil ancestry. I was born in Kuwait uh, just before the Gulf War um, and I was, I have lived since in many parts of India, um, some parts of the UK and across parts of the continent here. So I do feel like internationalism is something that runs in my blood. I have dark brown skin for a visual descriptor and jet black shoulder length hair. I'm wearing a black dress and a faded gold ring and have egg yolks painted on my nails. And to paint a picture for you, Joyce, of literally where I'm calling in from today is also my tiny apartment where we are primarily paying for location, but it's in the public square of Sydney's Chinatown, Haymarket, if you've, if you've been here and know it, and it's kind of surrounded by the din and bustle of community, which meant that even during the pandemic, there wasn't a moment of too much quiet, uh, which I loved. And it's not one of those Chinatowns that's like, there is some Orientalist architecture, but it's not suffused with a spirit that's purely for a hipster foot traffic. It kind of still retains an original intention. There's generational businesses here and Pan-Asian 
diaspora families that still live here. And of course, it's been affected by gentrification, but there is a sense of a sense of place to it that that feels intact. And right below my apartment, in fact, every Friday night, there's noodle markets. And speaking of food, I'm allergic to seafood, but the supermarket here stocks everything from an entire aisle of hot pot broths to cheese milk and ube and black sesame ice cream in the freezers. Um, and I love living here. It's incredible to me thinking uh, pre-pandemic and the opportunities that I had to actually physically be um, in Australia. I did, I mean, you know, it's a lot of, it seems like completely uh, another lifetime ago, actually doing all of that travel, but these stints to various festivals, like I've, I've been to Sydney. So when you describe the Chinatown, I do have some you know, sense memory of, of very quickly touring through. I mean, most of these trips were very, very short. And I think about how I might do that travel now. And I, I think I would probably do it in a three, four month, you know, stint of being embedded. And as you know, I just left the Australia Council for the Arts very recently after three years there. And one of the questions that I was obsessed with when I was there was how you retain autonomy when you're kind of stitched in to an institution of that size and scale and scope. And I think I learned a lot by bearing witness to some, yeah, some of these people from afar in the ability to do that. Wow. Can you say that again? What that, what your, that obsession was, how do you uh, retain, what was the word? Autonomy. Uh, Autonomy. Yeah, when you're kind of stitched into an institution of that. Yeah. Yeah, I had a, I had a very similar, I think similar question when I was at the Push Festival and for actually for any institution and what it means to be, what it could mean to be a curator, an independent curator outside of, of an institution, outside of an organizational mandate, outside of um, what would that mean? And yet for live performance, it's almost like you need those structures in order to do some of the work. Um, you need the resources that are afforded by those structures, you know, because you're actually moving people and bodies around and it, it's not, you need that structure almost, I don't know, it seemed at the time. Um, and I'm sort of trying to explore what it means now to be detached. I, I say that at the same time as I've just joined the city of Vancouver and I'm now a public servant, but it seems like there's, it's much a clearer boundary to me and I can keep those worlds quite separate. So do you maintain an independent sort of practice while you're at the city? I, I think that uh, post-push through the pandemic, I was kind of launched into the space of trying to figure out what that could mean. But quite practically, I was, I, my time was filled with, with juggling contracts as a, as a freelancer. Mm. And so I felt that I was, yeah, navigating, navigating that. So didn't have, didn't, had autonomy of a certain kind. I'm still figuring it out. Nitya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're super uh, fresh at the city. What, what prompted the, what prompted you to join well, you know, I think I had always uh, wanted to do a stint in public service at some point in my career. Um, and I always felt that I didn't want to do it too early. I wanted to wait. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do that is 
in my very early career, I had mentors, I had contacts, I had these incredible women that really took me under their wing. Um, that happened to be working in public service at the time after spending 20-ish years in the field. And there was just something about chatting with them and the conversations I had with them and how supportive they were because they had all of this knowledge from the field. And, you know, in comparison to folks that you would come across as as funding officers who didn't come from the field, and it was such a different experience. And so I just always thought like, mm, you know, I don't know if I'd ever go into like planning as a career or do that sort of, of a thing, but um, definitely as a as a way of, of, yeah, serving the community, offering back what I've learned or just be actually having, you know, after accumulating knowledge, being able to kind of give it back out again. I'm doing a project grant program at the moment. Yeah. A real demystification, I think, when you're on the other side. I think so. Absolutely. I think it's really inspiring at the moment to be exposed to such a wide range of of practice. You know, being at a festival, you're sort of at it's actually quite narrow the uh, the the amount of work that you are exposed to, right? It has to be at a in a particular state for it to to, you know, cross your desk, <laughs> so to speak. And you're also at the end where things are, are largely finished, whereas running a project program, it's a lot of ideas just at the very beginning of development often. Yeah, I resonate with what you're saying when people ask what three years at the Australia Council was like. It's such a broad question. But I do think that the thing that I will always take away is the the view, the bird's eye view of the entire span of art making on this continent that I couldn't have got from any other kind of vantage point. And that's been really humbling. And, and, you know, when I joined Australia Council, I was guilty of saying things like, oh, the conversation is so much further ahead in, you know, in parts of Europe or, and I think just like having that breadth of view was was beautiful across all art forms, all stages of career from like the most recently minted independent who's calling themselves an artist for the first time to a major organization on multi-million dollar budgets. It's just having that view was incredible. And the ability to dip and learn about art forms, you probably don't know the ecosystems and intricacies of as, as well as your own lane and being able to for, for a moment, it was utopia in some ways. I had joined the structure in an intergenerational team, in a highly capable team, and one that was kind of endowed with a sense of agency because of the understanding of like responsiveness required in international engagement. And I was also reporting to a woman of color who was reporting to a woman of color, which is so rare in the arts in Australia. And then didn't inherit a baggage of programs because it was a new remit. So there was a kind of, there was a lot of hope and enthusiasm, even though it was such a broad remit. And I really did, I learned a lot. I really loved my time there. And I think over the time there, it also became clear to me the the need for Australia to be in an international dialogue much beyond 
regular programming presentation on development models uh, or, or a sense of transaction and why an inter-Asia dialogue, particularly from where Australia is located regionally and also droughts, um, old droughts of exchange, biggest diasporas, that, that need for an inter-Asia dialogue to be a necessary part of decolonization. And in some senses, when COVID happened, it was like, I mean, it's bad for everybody, but it's pretty bad for an international engagement team when borders are closed. And it did feel for a while there, I used to joke, and I've said this publicly before, that the job is like speculative fiction. But I think <laughs> once that like despair passed, you know, and you've done all the force measures and you've had the painful conversations, it also allowed for almost that Octavia Butler type like speculative fiction in thinking of what international engagement can be. And I think in that process, we really moved from as a team through like pause and reflection and, and kind of very heated debate and conversation to a new strategy that is much more expansive, uh, I think, and kind of allows a lot of room for self-determined engagement for peer-to-peer -peer relationships for alternative kinds of alliance building that doesn't isn't tethered to presentation models only you know there's obviously space for that but it's a much more expansive view and it really moved from international development in quotes to international engagement and one that can look at regional located and international concerns at the same time whether that is you know cultural erasure that's eroded generational memory through colonialism or imperialism within the Asia Pacific itself or democratic rights being chased away within the regions and situated climate change questions across like the oceanic rims. And we were able to deliver hybrid programs that start to, to gestate and address big questions, which was bold move for the Australian Council. And yeah, I think that, that it felt like a very generative time and by the end i mean i think once your energy for the institution has dissipated it's it's wise to bow out and pass that mantle on because yeah i think i was reaching reaching the end of my engine and then didn't feel like i could bring my whole self to it anymore there's so much in what you described about that I want to just sort of take a moment and like unpack everything and have you explain every single little program and every single little initiative. But seeing as, you know, the very last thing about of, of what you said and, you know, losing a bit of yourself by the end of it, but what what's the thing that you feel most connected to um, with the work that you did accomplish while you were at OSCO for three years? I think the, the thing that I do feel proud of is setting, is embedding some of this in the new strategy so that it isn't tethered to the goodwill of individuals. Um, some of the, you know, a global First Nations exchange or a diaspora led Asia Pacific engagement, uh, opportunity for risk, experimentation, failure. These things are within, are embedded now into the strategy and that's a five year arc. So hopefully if the strategy is realized well, it will live on beyond the goodwill of certain individuals who come from the sector into these roles. Hmm. Yeah. And I think what you've described is, is I mean, that that's a big sectoral institutional, that's some institutional change that you're describing when something is beyond 
an individual with the goodwill. And I think so many of us go into this work being that individual with the goodwill trying to make the change. And if you've gone in there and you've been able to you know, work with the team to have that be embedded in the larger structure, that's an incredible accomplishment. I mean, even the language that Australia Council is use, using with international engagement, the new fund, which is the key funding mechanism of uh, Australia Council for International Activity now, is is also embraces a lot of this language that is quite progressive and it's future focused and it's very artist led language as well. It isn't kind of bureaucratic institutional language. And some of that work is so I think some of that labor in the institution can be quite invisible and you know not I'm I'm describing the the fun parts, but some of it is like get getting an easy English audit done on your forms, like really pushing against power structures to have embedded audio and video capability on applications. It's it's that stuff and doing the outreach work to really realize. And, you know, communities in Australia, communities of color, lots of First Nations communities um, rightfully have a lot of mistrust of the institution because they have been hyper-invisibilized and they've also been not heard, excluded for, for many decades. And to, to shift that, to build trust with those communities, not in a touch and go kind of way, that's ongoing work. And that needs not just people to drive that, but it can also be done in collaboration with communities who already have those existing relationships and are who are doing that work in the grassroots, at a grassroots level. But it has to be, there has to be budget for that kind of thing to happen in tandem with the mechanisms and the the strategy shifting. So, I mean, I've learned a lot at the Australia Council, I will say, and those were the, those were the good parts. So there's of course the, the everyday grind and yeah, the, whether you believe you can survive in the machinery of it all. But I think if you, when you do have the energy for that, the, the impact can be quite wide reaching. And I also mm. feel really excited by the kind of artists and programs we were able to invest in, or, you know, in the last three years and the ripple effects that that will have on the sector. Yeah. And listening to you, it's, and when you're in these positions, you're doing a lot to support the sector. What are you doing now to kind of feed yourself, to nourish yourself, to to feed your own practice? Excellent question. <laughs> Lots of, I feel like, one of the things that was hardest being part of the institution was bearing the burden of representation. And I was actually going to ask you at the outset of, of this journey that you're going, you're about to have how you will draw those boundaries for yourself. And, you know, I'm not necessarily very good at them. And I, I struggled, I struggled actually to draw, to draw boundaries or to understand that no, no can be a full sentence. And, I'm relearning, trying to relearn, but since finishing up, it's just been coming back to my body, gentle movement. I had a quite a rigorous dance practice for many years and I make performance now, but I don't perform myself. But I think coming back to my body through sort of gentle movement techniques, uh, I've been walking a lot. That sense memory of place that you were describing, I really feel like I'm renewing a love affair with the city that I live in. 
sleeping without setting alarms, just the sense of reckless abandon, which has been wonderful. And I read, I, I generally read a lot, but there was so much kind of policy and report and strategic <laughs> plan readings, grant application readings of the Australia Council. And I think going back to reading things that I love, it has been really nice. So I've been reading a lot on on three different things. One is on hope, and I've been kind of swimming in the black philosopher Connell West's thoughts on hope. And I've been reading a fair bit on liberty. Uh, at the moment, I'm reading Shami Chakraborty's book. She had at one point the title Director of Liberty at the National Council of Liberties, I think, in the in the UK. And uh, she has this impassioned sort of defense on of liberty. Uh, and I've also been reading a lot on language and linguistics and ancestral memory. I love poetry. But I'm reading uh, David Shulman's biography of Tamil. And he writes about my mother tongue as a, as a love letter to it, uh, but also as it's kind of looking at its internal architecture and uh, anatomy. And it's, almost, it's also a biography. So that's a very experimental form of writing about my mother's answer. I've been giving a lot of time to that. So much of what you described, like a walking practice, a gentle, you know, physical practice, a time for reading, you described like what the early pandemic was for me when things were really slow and things stopped and you could spend your time, you know, getting your 10,000 steps a day in after seven years of working at the push festival and, and um, so much travel and uh, all the time and with everything shutting down and being and staying put, I uh, cultivated this new appreciation of home uh, walking on streets that I had never walked down before, even though I've lived in the city my entire life, passing the same corner daily and watching the progression of, of the blooms coming in the spring and into summer and really being in that. And then all of the awful pandemic stuff of, of um, losing my job, of being terminated and, and what that was, being catapulted into freelancing and then now into this bit of stability. And I feel like the boundaries, I guess what I'm trying to figure out right now or what I'm um, wanting to not forget is, and I feel like I'm being very scrambly and inarticulate, but it's coming back to one of the themes of, of these conversations about care and what that means and how you can do it. I, I think I put so much of myself into the caring, into the work that I was doing and um, needing to find a different way of, of practicing that in a way that's um, more self-sustaining because I really can't afford to lose myself again in, in the work in that way. I think I also in uh, various positions that I've been in have like really felt the weight of, of being that person that's representing, not meaning to have ever been in, in that kind of a position, but, but being in it. And it was a lot. It mm. was a lot. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's generationally written to be a lot as well, but I feel like that's the kind of, induction tools you're not given on how to how to preserve yourself but also 
the right to your own counsel, like C-O-U-N-S-E-L, the right to your own point of view when you're in those roles. And it's really hard. I feel like I'm trying to re-access my inner mind at this point because I've let myself be swept away with, with intent to listen, but by all the noise of the sector and I'm trying deeply to like come back to my own self and it's very complex. Totally. I mean, I just try and honestly, I'm in, in a place coming back from a lot of uh, hard things during the pandemic that things for me are, are very kind of small, right? Like I'm not traveling. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm at home all the time. I'm really just focusing on simple things like trying to get enough sleep and (laughs) getting some exercise and taking care of the people around me and trying in my day to day to do what I can to make bureaucracy more human for the people that have to encounter it. Um, And if I can start with that, then, you know, I think I'll (laughs) get back to get back to the kind of capacity that I had before but in a way that wasn't, that, that won't suck my soul, you know, mm. to say it quite ineloquently. Yeah. What else? What's artistically sort of exciting you at the moment? I mean, are things opening back up? Are you seeing work? Things are opening back up. I'm kind of still adjusting to not seeing everything all the time. Mm. I think, you know, before the pandemic, I was at everything as much as possible and I just need to go a bit more slowly with that right now. It's also a lot to be, to adjust back into, you know, in-person meetings, remembering to, you know, as, as I forgot today, building in uh, travel time between things like really practical stuff. Um, And you know, I was um, for my job right now, we're all working from home. Um, we're also in the middle of an office move. And yesterday we had um, a site visit to look at our new office. Um, and it was the first time that so many people were actually physically in the office. Wow. Many people still haven't met before in person because there's new people to the team. Um, and like, I was so distracted. I had this like, I'm my hands are up and they're kind of vibrating. There was just this like giddy energy of, you know, being able to greet people and see people and walk together and, you know, to have the kind of interaction that you can only have when you're physically in a space together. I mean, I, I love the ability to continue to stay in touch, you know, for us to even have this conversation in the way that we're having now um, is completely magical. But, you know, we haven't been able to be in person for such a long time. And just adjusting back into that is, is, um, it's very overwhelming. (laughs) Yeah. 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 When I was in India, and had a bit of leave in between, I had the fortune to go check out the Shaheen Bagh protest in Delhi. And that was a pretty incredible, that was kind of the last big public gathering in a, in, of that scale since, I think. I haven't been with that many people uh, since. And it was the protest by these community of Muslim women who were protesting against change to the Citizenship uh, Act in India. And just the way 
like the choreography of public space when women can imagine it was fascinating, like beyond the the kind of prescient demand for citizenship, like beyond the political notes of what that protest was standing in for. I think just the the circularity of the seating, the the presence of joy and love and laughter if you came even as as someone passing through and there were thousands of people you would always get a hot cup of chai and be asked to sit down and and the men were in service roles and so they were they were definitely there as the kind of ring fencing of that space and you had a library there which said India reads India resists you had a stage with artists coming to like pay respect to these women and they had a whole system going so it would like block the highways but if an ambulance was coming through the whole thousands of people would pass so that the ambulance could go through and was just this kind of re choreography of public space when women can imagine it and i remember that being the last thought and now that as we open up to kind of gather on mass again thinking of what those what those assemblies will look like i guess that's beautiful that's exactly the kind of image that I want to be holding as we transition back into being in spaces together. Yeah, Um, that's exactly what, you know, I want us to be bringing through that portal. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, so many people were referencing that article, the pandemic is a portal. portal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely something to bring through. Thank you for listening to Unfoldings, a podcast series bringing together dance artists from Melbourne and Vancouver. If you enjoyed this conversation, please check out all five episodes of this podcast series and spread the word. Unfoldings is a collaboration between Dance House Diary in Melbourne and the Dance Centre in Vancouver, with support from the Canadian Consulate in Sydney, Australia, Australia Council for the Arts, and Dance House Melbourne.